Nein. Let's read the scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning. Mark chapter 9, and would you stand with me? Not on your heads, but on your feet. Would you stand with me and listen to what the Word of God says to us? Mark 9, 33. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and he had him stand among them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher said, John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of cold water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? And so have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. May God bless his word. You may be seated. If you'll notice in your uh, little green pieces of paper in your bulletins, you'll notice in the insert that the first thing I'd like to talk about this morning has to do with the problem that Jesus encountered. Jesus discerned the problem among his disciples when he told them that there were, was an argument about who is the greatest. There, there really was competing egos going on here. It was all about pride. And you'll notice that in the scripture, there's a good chance that it originated from the fact that Jesus invited three of his closer apostles to go up the mountain with him in the Mount of Transfiguration, while the other nine had to stay down at the foot of the mountain, and they had other problems that they had to face. It could be that it originated, this argument about who is the greatest, originated because these three on the road were saying, you know, we got to go up and we saw Moses and Elijah and uh, it's too bad you guys couldn't come with us. And there was pride building up in that. That might have been the origin of this argument about who is the greatest. Another possibility is that it could have been that their failed experience in being able to cast out this demon, this evil spirit from this boy's life It could be that they got talking about it and they were arguing about which of them was the closest to getting it done before Jesus came along and actually completed the the healing. Or it could have been that it started because in chapter 9, verse 31, we see that Jesus is teaching about the Son of Man, that he will be betrayed, that he'll be given into the hands of evil men, he'll be crucified, and then he'll be raised again. And it could have been that they discussed about who was the most loyal to Jesus. Because indeed, that does happen later on when around the Last Supper, 
they're arguing about some things, and, and Peter stands up and says, even if everyone falls away, I will never fall away. You see, at the base of some statements like that, there is pride. There is this idea that, that I, I'm better than the others around me, and so on. And so we don't know exactly where the problem originated, but we do know that the problem was pride-oriented, that there were competing egos going on, and neither, none of them were willing to lay it down. And that essence of that very spirit of argument and competition and pride was the very antithesis of what Jesus wanted to see in his followers. And he had to address it. He had to address it. And so, so as we proceed on, I want you to know that Jesus is still on task addressing what greatness is in his kingdom. So the next thing we see, the second point, is that the principle is defined in verse 35, the verse that we read with the children. If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. Now that statement is simple enough that a child can understand what it says. It's not a problem of us understanding what it says. The problem is, is applying that and living that out in our everyday lives, of living that, that servant attitude out in our everyday lives. Because we are born into this world and we are hardwired to be selfish and to think of ourselves. We never have to teach children or any of us how to be self-oriented. And so really what, what might look like to us is something that is sort of a common courtesy. Don't go first. Let your sister go first. You know, learn to serve each other. It might sound like common courtesy. Actually, it's the heart of what Jesus would call radical discipleship. This is radical discipleship. And if you think you've mastered it, then maybe you need other eyes to look at yourself with because none of us have mastered this. We're hardwired to think of ourselves first. And so we go back to that concept we talked about a couple weeks ago, the word metamorphosis, this transformation from the inside out, this change that, that God does as we give him rulership in our lives as we deny ourselves being first or being served and we take up our cross and we follow Jesus and in his power and presence in our lives he begins to change us from the inside out and that metamorphic word has the idea of essence the essence of Jesus begins to come out this is not conformity from the outside this is transformed from the inside this is not behavior modification this is not trying to clean up the outside of the cup while the inside remains dirty. This is spiritual transformation because Jesus is changing us from the inside out. And it is clear at this point in the game that the disciples are really not being transformed yet. In fact, they are demonstrating the very opposite of the essence of what Jesus' kingdom is all about. They are arguing about who is the greatest. And so Jesus has to, to, to teach them. Have you ever caught yourself wanting to promote yourself in the eyes of others? Have you ever caught yourself and been self-aware enough to see that you are really dealing with image management right now? You are really 
more concerned about what others are thinking of you or seeing you, and you're wanting to look good in the eyes of others. Have you ever caught yourself doing that? I have. It is an incredible experience to be able to recognize that, then take that to the cross, to Jesus, and say, Lord, I'm sorry. That is not what your kingdom is about. I'm sorry. That's pride. You know, we, we, we look at the disciples and we think, oh, you, you idiots. You think we just probably have a more refined way of the image management. We have a more refined way of dealing with how we'd like to be greater than the next person beside us. And so Jesus has to spend some time on this. So, so he, he goes into three different pedagogies, is our next point, three different pedagogies that he uses, three different methods that he uses to try and convey to his disciples that greatness in his kingdom is not what they're thinking of greatness as. He uses a, a, an illustration of a little child. He uses the experience of the disciples that they had, and he uses uh, a word thing called hyperbole in our language where he uses exaggerated terms in order to emphasize the point. So first of all, take a look at verse 36. You'll notice that Jesus has a little child come and stand among them. According to verse 35, they're sitting, but the child stands among them. And it's interesting. I wonder if, if this is Peter's house. Maybe it's one of Peter's children. We're not sure. And Jesus says, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but he welcomes the one who sent me. In other words, Jesus is saying, God is concerned about these ones. God loves these children. They're important to him. I wonder if even the incident occurred after the children had been shooed out of the room or after one of them had been hushed to be quiet. You see, in, in Jesus' culture, children were not doted on quite as much as they are in our culture. Children knew their place and they generally kept their place. Jesus does not set a child before the disciples in order to suggest that they're the epitome of trusting, innocent, pure, simple faith and obedience. Jesus knew reality more than that. He did not have such an unrealistic or romanticized view of children Rather, the point of comparison or the, the lesson derived from a child has to do with the insignificance of the child on the honor scale. Okay, think about that. The insignificance of the child on the honor scale in society. That's what Jesus is talking about here. A child has no power, no status. They are dependent, vulnerable, needy, almost socially invisible, easily ignored, and they serve their parents' wishes. That's children. And so Jesus says, care for these little ones, these least, these last, these lowest. That's how I define greatness in my kingdom. And he goes even farther. He says, and if you adopt that attitude among your peers, and instead of being the first, be the last, instead of expecting people to serve you, you be the servant, he'll say, that's, that's what greatness is in my kingdom. So secondly, he goes on to talk about an experience. He uses the experience that John raises. Notice in verse 38, Jesus is rather rudely interrupted, and 
and John, the apostle, speaks, and this is the only time in all the Gospel of Mark that John speaks, and we know that he's speaking on behalf of all the disciples. He uses the first person plural, we, and he says... We saw someone driving out an evil spirit in your name, but we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Now, the irony is is just dripping from this text, isn't it? And from us, the outsiders looking in on the text, it's very easy for us to see the irony. This is the group of people that just maybe a day or two earlier could not cast an evil spirit out of a boy, and Jesus came to do it. And now on the road to Capernaum, they find somebody else doing it successfully in Jesus' name. And they say, you can't do that. And the reason given in the text is because they're not one of us. (laughs) You can go a lot of places with this one. Not one of us. Not a card-carrying apostle. Not a member of the club. That was motivated by pride. You see, Jesus is still on task. He still is addressing this misconception of what greatness is. That that very statement by John is saying that the 12 figured they were the greatest ones. And if you're not part of our club, you can't speak in Jesus' name. Jesus is quick to respond. He says, do not stop him, for whoever is not against us is for us. Now, Jesus is not making some broad theological statement for the church of all time in this statement. Some have tried to make this thing walk on all fours and tried to extract all kinds of principles from this that are dangerous. Jesus is not doing that. He is simply making a very practical observation. I think in essence what he's saying is, he's saying don't be so arrogant as to think that you have exclusive rights to my name. Don't be status seekers, don't be islands, don't be elitists. Don't think that God only uses you and your group and your denomination and your brand of theology. Don't think that God needs you to police his power and authority on earth. In short, he's saying, don't be so full of yourselves. That's what he's saying. Police. He's saying that to them. I think there's principles in this that we could gain, even in thinking of our partnerships that we want to do ministry on earth with. If we can agree with an organization about giving a cup of cold water to those that need it, is it necessary that they're part of us? Is it necessary that we agree on every jot and tittle of doctrinal points? I don't think so. If we can agree with all kinds of organizations on how to minister to the least and the last and the lost and the lowest and the unlikely of this world, I think we should do so in Jesus' name. In fact, I would say that throughout the history of the church, more harm has come to the cause of Christ Because too many churches and Christian organizations will not cooperate with each other. Unless they're in charge or unless they get the credit. But it's amazing what good can be done on this earth if no one cares who is the boss and no one cares who gets the credit. 
It's amazing what could be done. Jesus used this, this illustration, this, this incident, this experience in the lives of the apostles to turn it all around to say, hey, let's talk about greatness. Jesus uses this, and he reveals that they're motivated by pride, which has no place in his kingdom. And then the third type of, of methodology that Jesus uses in verse 42 and following Jesus brings the conversation back to the little child that's still in his arms. In verse 42, he brings it back. And he says, using a very strong device known as hyperbole, you know, like, this book weighs a ton. That's hyperbole. I was going to make a comment about the jets, but I decided not to. Hyperbole is overstating something for the sake of emphasis. Jesus says in this text, If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Saying it would be better to drown in the sea than to face the judgment that God is going to dish out to those who lead others into sin, and especially these little ones who believe in Christ. David Garland says this. He says that God shows more concern for the little one's fragile faith than for the great one's fragile ego. I want to mention at this point that I'm, I'm, I'm extremely glad that this summer as we get ready to send out and prepare three teams to, be, to represent our church in ministry this summer, I, I'm so glad that two of the teams are ministering to children, these little ones that are so precious in God's sight. The, the Adventures at the Ridge program that's under Grace Elke is going to be at the Lindenwoods Community Center this summer for two weeks. We need still, we need some servants. We need people who are going to help that program. And I'm so glad it's all aimed at children. And the other one is the Garden Hill trip. Pathway Camp Ministries going up to Garden Hill. We still need people. It's interesting that this last year we had six women. This year we got all men so far. We need some women too to fill out that team. The native kids up in Garden Hill need to see role modeling from men and women that love them, purely love them for Jesus' sake. I'm so glad that, that two of the teams this summer are all about children. And so Jesus, in verse 43 of this text, he strings together a group of exaggerated warnings to tell them that they should be worried as much about the enemies within us as the enemies outside of us. And so in very, very crude terms, he says, if your hand or your eye or your foot cause you to stumble, it would be better to get rid of them and enter the kingdom of God without them than than to be thrown into the fires of hell. And the word that is used for hell in this scripture, in the NIV, in the Greek text, is the, is the word Gehenna. The word Gehenna comes from the valley of Hinnon, outside in the south part of Jerusalem, outside of the gates. This valley that in ancient times, before Israel had, had taken the land, way back in the Old Testament history, when it was yet Canaanite country, that valley of Hinnon was the place that, that was like a crematorium where children were sacrificed on, on, by their parents to the gods. 
Okay, that's the valley. This valley over the years was always the place of refuse, animal carcasses, garbage. Historians tell us that the fires never went out in the valley of Hinnon. And so over time, by the time it gets to Jesus, this place became known as hell or epitomized as hell because of the fires that never were quenched. Now, I want to say clearly, Jesus is speaking in hyperbole when he talks about the illustrations of the eye and the foot and the hand. He is not using hyperbole when he talks about hell. Jesus is not contradicting what the Old Testament prophets and the Old Testament law of Moses stated, which prohibited any form of self-mutilation of the body. Okay? God's word clearly says self-mutilation of the body is wrong. Jesus is not contradicting that in this. There is no sense of purging the soul by punishing the body here. This is not being taught. I knew a man from Thunder Bay that took some of these words literally, jumped ahead of a train, and lost one of his hands trying to obey this scripture. Jesus is not suggesting we self-mutilate. He is using hyperbole. He is saying that it is better in this life to deny ourselves anything that leads to sin than to hang on to and face God's final judgment with it. The reason he employs such a shocking imagery is because of the gravity of the subject matter. If you and I could just understand hell for three seconds, if we could just be dangled over the flames for a few seconds, we would want to do anything in our power to avoid it. Including taking the axe to the root of our pride and and killing the idea that I'm the greatest in any manner. That's what we'd be willing to do. And so Jesus is not speaking in literal terms here at all. He is speaking figuratively, metaphorically. He's speaking in hyperbole. And he's using grave subject matter to get the message across. I hope we don't lose sight of that. Finally, I want to suggest that in the fourth point, the prescription that Jesus gives at the end of this lecture, at the end of this lesson, he talks in verses 49 and 50 about salt. Again, various times salt is used in Scripture as a metaphor. Salt in the ancient world was used as a purifier, as a preservative, as an element of flavor. Jesus is using salt here to suggest that the flavor of his kingdom the essence of his kingdom can be described by salt in this way as a preserving and purifying agent in society and in our lives. He is, he is summing up everything that he has spoken of regarding the essence of the kingdom. This idea of the first being the last, the serving, the greatest is being the servant and, and all these things that are, he, he speaks of in various places. He's summing it all up and he's saying salt is the essence of the kingdom. That's the primary element. And if you don't have this element in yourself, then you cannot be part of my kingdom. 
In the ancient world, salt could actually become worthless. It could lose its saltiness. And so what was it good for? I mean, nothing, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, except to be thrown on the streets, under, trampled underfoot by men. And the same is true for followers of Jesus Christ. Followers of Jesus Christ that lose their saltiness are worthless to the kingdom. They're, they're of no value on this earth to God. That's why it's urgent that Jesus gets this message across to his disciples whom he's leaving his church in charge of after he's ascended. They've got to get this because God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. If they don't get this, they can't be part of his kingdom. You see, it's, it's, a, it's an incredible contradiction when someone who professes that they're part of the kingdom, they profess that by being connected to Jesus, they have been forgiven of so much. It's an incredible contradiction when having been forgiven of this much, they cannot live a life of forgiveness. When having been given the hope of eternal life, they put all the eggs in basket in this world instead of storing up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not come in and thieves cannot come in and steal and so on. You see, it's a huge contradiction if we profess but we don't possess the essence of the kingdom. If we've lost our saltiness, God passes us by. There are Christians that are passed by. They're no good. They've lost their saltiness. There's churches that have lost their essence of Jesus serving the community, living for the sake of others. If you become a member of our church, it's not like you got membership rights. You know what your rights are? You're going to be the servant of all. That's what membership means. Jesus says, my kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. And so it's an incredible contradiction. You can't lose your saltiness, Jesus says. Now, the other way of looking at this is that there's some who professed that they knew Jesus, but they didn't possess, even in the beginning, that saltiness. We know at least one of them was listening to Jesus when he spoke because Judas was among them. He was not truly a follower of Christ, though he professed to be and hung out with them and looked like one. And so just because we go to church or just because we carry our Bible around or just because we call ourselves Christians is no, is no security that you have the essence of Jesus and his kingdom. You see, it doesn't matter that you maybe could say, well, I prayed the prayer when I was a little boy or a girl or I walked the aisle, or... What matters is, are you evidencing the essence of transformation in your life? Jesus said, you'll know the, the tree by its fruit. Can you say, yes, I know that Jesus is changing me, because even when I act in selfishness and I don't want to be the last, or even when I don't want to serve my brother, or my sister, or my mom or dad, or my children, or whatever... The Holy Spirit in me convicts me and I deal with it. Or even when I don't want to forgive the person that has wronged me, I know that's not God's kingdom in me and I confess it and I go and make it right. You see, that's signs that you belong to Jesus. The essence of the kingdom, the saltiness is there. 
We're hardwired to live that old way, but as soon as you do so, the Holy Spirit should convict and guide, and you should obey the Holy Spirit's prompting and make it right. Jesus concludes this whole section by saying, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Do you notice how he's coming full circle back? He's coming, it began with an argument about which of them was the greatest, and now Jesus is coming full circle back to where the discussion began. He's saying the essence of Jesus, who came not to be served but to serve, was not yet in his disciples, and and he's saying, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Instead of arguing about who is the greatest, be at peace with each other. That's what he's saying. You can imagine that if this essence was on every one of us in such fullness, we'd never be arguing about who's the greatest. I'd be standing up here and saying to you, folks, I know you think you're the chief of sinners. Guess what? I've got you beat. That's what we'd say. You're not the chief of sinners. I'm the chief of sinners. You can't, you can't, you can't go last. I'm going to go last. You won't serve me. I'm going to serve you first. You see how that kind of a community and environment, just there's no arguments going on. That's what Jesus is saying to his followers. On the back page of your green piece of paper, you'll notice that I've included a bit of an acrostic as best as I can to try and convey this idea of what salt stands for, the way Jesus is using it, not just here but in other passages. I think that salt means that the essence of the kingdom in us manifests in being selfless. And the world is so different than that, isn't it? The world just is selfish. Okay. Secondly, it's being available. Available for God's agenda. Not, it's not, my agenda doesn't matter most in, in this day. God's agenda for me or somebody else's agenda. It's, it's also saying, I'm willing to be the least, the last, and the lowest. And then finally, it's this teachability. We all have our blind spots, but, but when you are shown it, will you be teachable? It's like I said on Good Friday. You know, we, we can live our lives as though we're the star of the movie about me. And Jesus, or God, is best supporting actor. Best supporting actor's purpose is to make the star look good. We can treat God that way. Jesus says, no, I, that's not why I saved you. I saved you for a new life, a resurrected life, a life that's not like the world around you. And that's what God calls us to. Could you come, Kevin, and lead us in uh, a song as we conclude? And um, I want to encourage you that you just ask the Lord to do it, do it even deeper in you, give you that saltiness that, that you know you need. Let the Holy Spirit have his way in our lives so that we would reflect him. God bless you.